Welcome back, everybody, to Clearwater Jazz Holidays Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. I'm Steve Weinberger, CEO of the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation, and I'm really excited to have our good friend Jeremy Carter back with us today on a topic that he's calling Intermediate Tenor Sax. We're recording these sessions for the purposes of Clearwater Jazz Holiday Education and Outreach. If you have questions, feel free to use the chat feature or the raise your hand feature. We'll get those questions to Jeremy. If you have feedback for any of these sessions or a topic you'd like us to cover, please don't hesitate to send that information to info at clearwaterjazz.com. Check out all of these sessions at the education and outreach page at clearwaterjazz.com. And uh, check out the new resource that we call the studio, which archives all of the past full recorded video sessions, as well as some really cool session materials and curated playlists from the guest musicians. And if listening is your thing rather than watching, we have launched the new Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions podcast, which is available wherever you stream your podcasts on most major platforms. And we're working with this wonderful team of educators and musicians to build this really incredible free resource for everybody to enjoy. We thank our sponsors, Blue Water Wealth Management at Steward Partners for helping to present the studio and our good friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present the podcast series. Jeremy Carter is one of the most sought after saxophonists in the Tampa Bay area. He's such an incredible performer. He's no stranger to Clearwater Jazz education and outreach. And he's traveled all over the place. He shared the stage with some, some of today's top acts and has several sold out performances of his own. He, he is so entertaining, so engaging, and we consider ourselves really lucky to have him participating with our programs and specifically these virtual sessions. Jeremy Carter, it's so good to see you, my friend. The stage is all yours. Steve, thanks for the introduction. I don't know what to do now. I'm blushing a little bit. I don't know if you can tell, but <laughs> my good friend Lee Mainberg uh, attending here. And uh, thanks to everybody who's uh, checking out our uh, Clearwater Jazz Holiday uh, Education and Outreach page here. Uh, if you're looking to um, brush up on your on your music um, uh, pursuit and journey, uh, or, or if uh, you're, you're just looking to advance it, you're in the right place, and uh, you've already taken some of uh, uh, the best steps you can um, to, to assist in that cause. So today, um, we're going to be doing some intermediate uh, tenor sax stuff. Um, yeah, I've been, um, I'm constantly working, I'm constantly in the woodshed. Uh, one thing you have to know is that no matter where you are in the process, uh, the journey continues. Um, you know, there, there's always something to do. There's always another uh, wrinkle. Uh, there's another layer layer of the onion, you could say. Um, so yeah, I've been I've been working on a lot of stuff here lately. Um, I just started um, doing a little search for some uh, for some mouthpieces, and so uh, yeah, I guess that leads us uh, into our our first topic. I want to try to cover, and it's. Um, and it's your equipment. Uh, I know uh, in, in my introductory uh, video, I talked about it a little bit, but just in terms of, um, you know, how you would address, like what you would need to do to get uh, more familiar with your equipment. After you've, after you've done that, um, selecting the right equipment is important. 
um, when you're when you're playing the tenor sax uh, in the musical world has always been likened to like the cello is a very vocal instrument. And so um, I've always been of the belief that you should, um, you know, have a very singing like quality uh, when you're um, when you're when you're approaching the tenor sax. Um, I mean, not just that, like if you're if you're um, if you play an instrument um, where you're able to play melodies, you know, anything other than, you know, even drummers can play a little bit of melodies depending on how they tune their toms and stuff like that. But the idea is to to really focus on the lines that you're trying to deliver much in the same way that you would speak to someone. You know, depending on how good an order you are, you you know you're you're kind of careful about the words that you select, and the same thing happens uh, when you uh, when you're playing music. Uh, if you're doing a good job of telling a story, you know, right? So, um, so before I get into that, let me just let me cover the equipment. Like I said, I've been uh, researching um, uh, a few different manufacturers for uh, some mouthpieces and reeds and stuff like that. So uh, one thing I can suggest to you, uh, if you're if you're new or if you're in the middle, wherever you are, uh, if you have any doubts or um, curiosity about equipment, like don't believe any of the stuff you read online, most of it is just make all, you have to go out and, and, and uh, try stuff yourself. You, you have to just experiment with gear because what works for one person may not work for another person. Like I said, it's very personal. It's like asking somebody what's the best shoe size, right? <laughs> the one that fits you, right? So, yeah, I've been working with this company up in Jacksonville. Uh, it's a really small company, Mom and Pop, uh, John Thomas Woodwinds. Um, they sent me a bunch of really, really great mouthpieces uh, with different personalities. And so I've been able to sit here for the last couple weeks and just kind of sort through them and try them out. And even, you know, I've been playing for 30 years and this is still a, a part of the process. It's not that I had a problem with my gear. It was just that, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're curious, you know what I mean? Like I, I loved my, my previous setup. I was playing on like an older link style tenor sax uh, mouthpiece, which is uh, really typical, really common. Um, I know you can, just go through the, the annals of, uh, of, of tenor sax players and you'll see a lot of Oda Links. <clears throat> they're, they're one of the most popular mouthpieces uh, that you can uh, um, uh, buy uh, for tenor sax. Chris Potter, John Coltrane, Ben Webster, Sonny Rollins, I mean, Dexter Gordon. You can't really find uh, too many great jazz uh, players who haven't played on the Oda Link. And that's what I was playing for the last 10 years. and. Uh, I picked these up and they were just, they were really great. Um, they allowed me to do a lot of the same things. Um, they're rubber, obviously. I don't know if you can see these. Um, and I also paired it up with a Robner um, platinum ligature. I have a couple others that I was using. Um, this one's really cool. It's like a Roberto's wooden. It's actually made out of Cocobolo wood. Or no, these are uh, ebony, the dark ebony wood. These are really cool, really colorful. Um, but they're ring style. And <clears throat> when you put it on there, you don't have the ability to adjust where you put the, the ligature on the on the table. You know, some people prefer it a little closer to the tip. And some people prefer a more recessed approach, a la Dexter. 
Uh, and so while I do love that ring ligature, one of the problems I had with it was that uh, some of the thicknesses of some reeds uh, were different. So um, I wasn't able to adjust the reed or adjust the ligature as I wanted. So I paired this mouthpiece up with a, a Robner Platinum, which is really nice. It's Robner's only metal uh, ligature that they make. And uh, yeah, it's really smooth. Um, so yeah, um, after 10 years of playing metal, uh, I think I've uh, made the switch um, to rubber, and I'm, I'm really happy about it. And so I say all that to say that when, when you're going through your gear, when you're selecting your gear, uh, don't be afraid to experiment. Uh, let your curiosity and imagination run wild because uh, you just never know what, uh, what you'll run into. And, you know, honestly, you want every advantage uh, that you can get to, uh, to achieve the sound that, uh, that you want to. Um, so that's a little bit about gear and uh, what I've been doing with that. I'm also playing, uh, which I have been for a long time, uh, a Brigati Gold um, three softs uh, with uh, this is a John Thomas 120 tip opening, uh, which is um, a nine for uh, you tenor players, which is kind of big. But uh, I'll, I'll do some playing here in a little bit, and you'll kind of see that. Uh, Although it's big, it's, you can you can control it. It's got a really solid core. Um, one of the things that I know, like I said, I've, I've played on my on a, on a link for ten years, so I, I've been happy with it. I've, I've recorded on television. I've done many albums uh, in that time, done concerts and listened back, and really been pleased uh, with the results um, that I get with it. But uh, you know, the older you get, <laughs> sometimes you don't want to work so hard to uh, achieve the same goal. And I think that's one of the things that I was uh, so struck by with these John Thomas pieces. And, you know, I just, I tried them. I didn't really have any expectations. Like I said, I was in a really good position. I was always already really happy with what I was playing on. So I didn't really have any expectations for trying these. And then they sent me um, like five of them in the mail. And every one I put on was slightly different. They sent me some uh, different facings. Like I have an eight, a couple eight stars, I don't know, uh, maybe a couple couple nines, a couple one twenties, a lot of mouthpieces, which is very kind of them. Shout out to John Thomas, uh, mouthpieces up in up in Jacksonville, super kind, super easy to work with. Um, and so yeah, I, I got these mouthpieces, and every single one of them was just slamming. I mean, like I played on them the whole first day. I just got a, a, a tooth removed at oral surgery last week, and. Uh, my dentist, uh, Doc Glenn Saradar, another local St. Pete guy, good friend of mine uh, on the local scene, he was so kind to uh, help me out with the tooth, and he basically extracted this tooth. It wasn't really ready to come out. So anyway, I'm in ridiculous pain, like the day after I received these mouthpieces, and I was under doctor's in uh, instructions not to play, because of course that was one of the first things I was curious about. When am I going to be able to play, Doc? Not about the food, not about the water, not about the aftercare. It's a saline rinse. When can I play? <laughs> so he's like, well, you know, just play it by ear, you know, pack some gauze in there. And I'm swollen. My face is hanging out. Well, I'm bleeding blood and stuff. It's just, it's it's disgusting. And I really didn't know what to expect. So, I mean, I rode my motorcycle to the doc, the dentist's office, all the vibrations, the whole way, you know, I'm dying, right? So anyway, the next day I get these mouthpieces and I'm, I feel like I've been in a skirmish, <laughs> and uh, but I mean I I just had to try these pieces, so I put them on. I'm in I'm in a lot of pain, and just from the first couple notes, I was like, wow, there's there's something here, 
And then obviously, yeah, the, the next thing you know, I, I played the better part of that day after having oral surgery. I was just so happy uh, with these mouthpieces because I wrote them an email that night telling them how happy I was and started the dialogue back and forth. And uh, we're going to be working together uh, here soon to, to, you know, maybe develop uh, some other products. So that's really exciting as well. Um, so anyway, so that's that's the gear. What's what's kind of what I've been going on. Um, um, the one, I guess the first thing I want to cover um, in this in this session is uh, I talked a little bit about storytelling and in this in intermediate session I want to kind of build a bridge to uh, the advanced session that we're going to do which is um, just which is going to cover more harmonic stuff like we'll, we'll cover some more as the title would suggest uh, advanced concepts but today um, we're going to give you some really, really e easy building blocks, uh, no matter where you are um, in your um, in your level of play. Uh, we'll, we'll, what it will do is to serve to build a healthy foundation for improvisation and just being free with your instrument, regardless uh, of the genre that you're playing with. You're going to be able to just build a foundation for a solid uh, woodwind uh, technique and uh, your approach uh, to your craft. So. Um, one of the first things I would suggest is um, just, if, if you can, sing a melody. Think of any melody, like pick a song. It's really hard to do. Every time I do a gig, it's really, like if we're doing a jam session or something, musicians are like, okay, what are we going to play? And then, you know, two or three minutes later, I'm really bad about that. I know a million tunes, but if you ask me to call one off on a bandstand, usually uh, the tumbleweeds and all that stuff. But uh, what you want to do is just sing a song, like select a template that you want to begin to work, right? Um, so, yeah, for example, um, if you wanted to do, if you're thinking about um, something like, um, let's just say a C minor uh, concept, right? You're just thinking like... So I'm using I'm using extensions there, right, with the with the nine and and uh, in the in the seven, right? Um, if you just play like a C minor, just just think of a think of a think of a line. Just hum something um, immediately. I I'm, I'm thinking bolero, right? Right. So when you when you're doing this, when you do this exercise, it allow you it will allow you to play what you're hearing. You know, um, I've seen you know Barry Harris, one of the one of the great uh, clinicians, was saying like you can't play it if you can't hear it. And so I think a lot of times people uh, get the get misled into believing that all oh, jazz is just free. You can just do whatever you want. You can. You can just kind of wing it, but what it's there's some truth to that. But uh, if you want to be an effective communicator, you can't you can't speak like that. You, musically, you can't speak like that. And so, you want to try to um, really play ideas that uh, that come from within, and not just you know wiggling your fingers. So. I guess what I'll do, I can't really play piano and, and sax at the same time, but I guess I'll just take the concept of a C minor, right? And just and just play with it. 
you know, like a, like a tone poem, right? And I'm trying to communicate ideas that are original. Now, you don't always, you don't have to stay in C, right? You can go wherever you want to, but that's what's happening, right? Right? center like I, in my mind i'm still thinking of a way to try to resolve like some type of way to get back to the c whether it's two five one right a two five one thing or some neoclassical thing where you know you just you're doing all kinds of different movements in there so as free as that was like i'm still moving through there and i'm singing i'm thinking about uh these concepts so uh, one one tool that you can use um, that I've used for a long time. Um, I think um, I can't even remember where I initially uh, discovered the concept, but a lot of guys are doing it. A lot of modern play players are uh, using this idea of uh, of triads. Um, so if you're if you're doing a um, a minor concept like that, like in in C, uh, which you could do, and, and there's lots of instructional. Uh, material out there. I think Walt Weisskopf is a, I, well, in fact, I know he does. I have his book, uh, Walt Weisskopf, uh, a few other guys. I know Chad Lefkowitz Brown has some um, uh, intervallic stuff uh, with triad um, exercises and things like that. But they're really useful to, to kind of get you out of modal playing. Um, they're useful in, like in, in just many different settings. Um, you can, it, like regardless of the modal uh, value, uh, you can use um, you can use triads really effectively. Um, so uh, I guess one. So like I was saying, we were in C. Um, if any minor key, right? So if you're in C, what you want to think of is like the four and five of of uh, or, or uh, you're thinking about. Uh, so you're thinking about the minor third and the fourth, right? If you're in a if you're in a minor key, so R C or the C concert, right? So what you want to do is build build your triads off of your third, off of the third scale degree and the fourth scale degree, right? 
That's just one, three, five, right? One, two, three, and four, right? So you want to use those as your basis for building triads. And these are just basic triads. Once you establish these, we'll get into ways to mutate them and add some different colors. But this is just really basic stuff, right? So you're taking uh, the fourth or the third and fourth scale degree of any minor key as we are here at C. I'm just building a major triad off of that third scale degree. And then off of the fourth, one, two, three, four, right? That's a really cool color, right? So I'll, I'll just demonstrate something real quick. Right? So all I'm doing with that is just using inversions of the same two triads, right? The first one being the E flat, first inversion, uh, and then F, first inversion, or a root position, and then uh, and then you're you're going back to E flat, F, B flat, or uh, E flat, back to F. Right? So you're just using those triads to, to mix it up. So I'll try to do this as best as I can with the sustain pedal, right? Right? So that's just one way that you can color this idea or color that chord um, with one single set of triads. Right? Now, what happens, right, if I take this, uh, if I take the um, um, the E flat chord, right, and this is where you would, uh, this is where you would start to add some color into your, um, your your chordal concept, right? So you have the C minor, right, and you have the E flat and F. But what if I what if I took the took the B flat in that scale and made it a B. So now I'm going. Right? So so now you're thinking. Right? Immediately by changing one color you have the, or changing one note, you have a completely different color in that scale, right? So I'll play one, I'll just drop a C chord, a C minor chord, and just mess around with it with the root or with the, you know, the E flat and the F standard. And then I'll drop another one and, do, and then demonstrate with adding the color of the B natural there, like an augmented idea, right? Okay. flat in that same type of a sequence. Right? One note in that sequence totally changes the, the whole vibe and the whole feel, like the way that like there's a, there's a certain suspense there. Uh, or just color, like how, however you want to think about it, but it, it, it certainly is noticeable. So that's that's one way that you can like really deliberately like decide to add or remove 
uh, different colors within an established uh, harmonic thing. And I don't want to like get too far into this, uh, <laughs> this being an intermediate session, but uh, yeah, like using triads as a way to, um, to work your way around um, um, chord or uh, sequences of chords. And that's the next thing, right? So <clears throat> I was just demonstrating over one chord. Um, you can also do this. Like, uh, for example, like you can take, um, like there's a couple different chords. Like say I use like a G flat seven, right? Right, you can also use this. Like when you when you when you have a chord, like a lot of times you'll see uh, in 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 jazz uh, um, notation, you'll have a chord on top of a different root, and so when you're playing, that's essentially like as a as a tenor, as a sax player, that's essentially what you're doing. Like you can, you hear some a uh, uh, um, a root note being dropped. But the way that you interpret it is going to kind of dictate how, you know, how you move through the through the series. And it's really important to like have a good mix of um, um, playing inside, playing outside, you know, being inside the form and outside just for the sake of variety. You don't want too much uh, of of any one thing. And there's a lot of different things you can do, like the way that you interpret the rhythmic value, um, the, the your, like your dynamics, like how well you mix in uh, um, soft and loud. You know, if you hear somebody, if you hear a good player, like there's usually a good mix of soft and loud, right? So, um, yeah, you, you, want, you want to uh, use all these things in balance, right? So, uh, that chord I was dropping in, what was that? G flat, right? Right? What if I flatten the five, right? Right, so one note can really alter the way that you that you think. Like that was just another, like it was just a scale, right? I just took a G uh, a G flat seven and just flat the five, right? Now the same thing that we were just talking about uh, with a triadic approach, you can do the same no matter what the values. You can do it with the dominant chord, you can do it uh, with minor chords, with major chords, and they really allow you to get in and out of stuff. Um, in and out of chord sequences in a, in a really interesting and colorful way, right? It's not just standard. That's kind of how you set yourself apart um, in, in terms of your harmonic uh, approach and uh, your, your musical concept, like how you hear it uh, in terms of like the, the dynamics. Like, are you like, if you think about a sax player like Lee Konitz, or like a Stan Getz, you know, they had a sound concept versus like a Jan Garbrink, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Jan Garbrink has a thing too. Um, so all these things are really important when you're trying to develop um, a good, clean sound, right? So I guess what I'll do, um, let me see, I'll select a tune and just kind of work through some tri uh, triadic, um, 
detritic stuff, really simple, nothing too crazy. Um, let me see. I guess uh, I can do like autumn leaves, something like that. Uh, first song that comes to mind, I'm terrible with it. But I'll try to work some um, some some triadic stuff in there without you know going too nuts with it, but just some kind of basic ways to interpret um, uh, those changes with, with no uh, accompaniment which is also a, a, something that you should be able to do. You should, like, when you're playing in a setting, just because you're, you know, playing the sax doesn't mean you should be unaware of um, what all your other musicians are doing, right? So you should have a really good concept of what the drummer is doing, a good feel for time. Like, not like you know, you need to know how to play drums well, but you should understand the drummer's responsibility in order to understand how you can interact with him to enhance the band's presence, right? The same thing goes for your bass player. He's walking the bass lines there. He's, he's, he's playing bass function, but there's a lot of rhythmic stuff happening in there. How he and the drummer lock in is going to kind of determine how the band sounds. And then you as a, a, a melody instrument or a lead instrument, how you interact with all your other players is going to determine the group concept, right? So it's not just like you going out like, oh, it's my time to shine, you know, because I mean, honestly, in a lot of ensembles, like the sax player or the lead, the vocalist is not playing all the time. And so how you enter, you, you know, present yourself and uh, enter into that concept and how you exit from it is just, you know, it's just as important as what you play. And you can take that same concept into your the lines, the melodic figures that, that you speak, right? Like how you get into them and get out of them is really important, uh, which is uh, which uh, leads me to talk about the use of space, right? A lot of times guys are just always concerned with what to play. A lot of times, um, you know, some of my, or some of, not just me, some, some of the most effective um, statements made in music come after the pause, right? Because you, it's like eating ginger when you're eating sushi, right? You cleanse the palate. You cleanse your your, your ear, right? With that space, you allow the the moment, the band, the space in, 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 the, in the room, the concert hall to breathe, right? And then when you make that statement, it's much, much, much more effective. So, um, yeah, I'll play around with... Uh, uh, with autumn leaves here, and just try to uh, incorporate um, some of uh, some of the concepts that we talked about so far. And uh, while I'm doing that, if there's anybody out there, uh, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free uh, to contact Steve, or you can contact me on Facebook. And uh, for our future listeners, uh, yeah, the same uh, is uh, same invitation is extended to you. If you hear something uh, that uh, you're interested in if you have some questions about something i may mention don't hesitate uh to let us know and uh, we'll try to take care of that Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I was just working through the changes to autumn leaves. Those in G. You know, I just started off just stating the melody. You know, if you're, uh, I think one of the things that uh, a lot of players or just artists in general should understand that, like, in that particular context or in this setting, you know, when you're on, when you have the opportunity for, to perform and all all the things you already like, just take your time. You know, don't don't rush. You know, I mean, sometimes there is a need to rush. Like you should have a sense of urgency. Like you want to convey some sense of uh, of, of of importance and, and urgency, right? But that's only for effect. <laughs> like in essence, you should be like really relaxed and just really cool in order to have the type of clarity necessary to communicate the ideas and to form the ideas that are necessary to achieve um, uh, whatever end uh, you're trying to, uh, to, to uh, effectively communicate the sound in your head. Um, so yeah, triads are something that, uh, that I use a lot. Um, obviously some of my heroes, um, Chris Potter, there's many of them, John Coltrane, Michael Brecker, <laughs> Sonny Stitt, Sonny Rollins, all these guys have different um, qualities in their playing that uh, is really intriguing to me and pleasing to me. You know, I love listening to them. And yeah, there's there's there's, there's such a wealth of information uh, um, from which you can draw um, in terms of like assembling all the tools necessary to put together a proper toolkit and to to perform effectively. And so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I try to use triads. I, I listen a ton. Like, I, I listen every day. Um, and there's something that I try to get from um, from all my heroes, right? Um, not so much in the sense of... I do do some transcribing, and, and like, I have some written solos that I'll, that I'll try to play along with. Notice I said try to. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I don't find that that stuff is, like as useful as just trying to understand like the essence of, of where they're coming from. Um, like, like you can go through the Omnibook, uh, which I had here, I was working on last night. Um, and you can learn Charlie Parker licks. If you go through there, if you read through the Omnibook, you'll see a lot of similarities and a lot of patterns, a lot of tendencies. A lot of these figures are very similar and so then you kind of have to go into a little bit more uh, uh, um, analysis and, and dissect some of these things a little bit further and to, to figure out why he was doing these things. And you'll see that a lot of the same similarities occur, whether it was like just his understanding of the chord sequences or him using his ear or a combination of the two. These tendencies seem to be there, right? I mean... For some, that's good. For others, not so much. Like if you hear a player um, uh, like Coltrane, like he seemingly never repeated himself, was on a mission to to never play the same thing. But uh, I only I only mentioned Bird to say that if you wanted to initially learn the language, it's good to go through there and dissect and just to understand all of the patterns uh, that exists uh, within um, uh, traditional bebop changes or any changes. You, you'll, you'll find these changes anywhere. Um, in church, in pop music, 
you know, the two five ones are ubiquitous, right? You'll find a lot of the same chord changes in uh, a lot of different kinds of music. So transcribing um, note for note is really important. But if you're just listening along with the with the record and you can kind of feel the vibe of, of what they're doing, you know, the, uh, the the intended like so when you're when you're transcribing, you have to slow it down. We don't have to. It's, it's easier if you do. And I think when you do that sometimes, or people that do that a lot, you lose the intent. Like once you bring it back up to full speed, yeah, you may be able to play all the notes, but you miss the energy. You miss the the the, the intent of the phrase, right? And you want to you want you want your music to have meaning, right? So getting all that stuff uh, is important. Like Charlie Parker said, to quote Charlie Parker, learn all that stuff and then forget about it, right? And just play. You know, it's really important to have um, like a childlike uh, attitude when you're playing and be really free with it. Um, so learning tunes is really important. Um, along with transcribing, um, all the language is is there. A lot of these figures, a lot of the, the, the bebop idioms or the jazz idioms, the, the little phrases that that are uh, uh, that are common um, most of these things are found in just playing playing bebop or playing the heads rather uh, concepts like uh, enclosure you know uh, that's that's something else you can you can try um, I'll, I'll mess with that a little bit just to demonstrate what I'm talking about but the concept of enclosure is, is really um, um, really effective to, I mean, I use it um, in terms of creating like a misdirection. You know, it's it's tough for me to talk about some of these things because I never really put these thoughts into words. Like, you know, I, I study the paint, you know, I take notes and I, you know, I do my, my work and my practice and I don't, I rarely think to put some of these things into words. So excuse me. Um, but yeah, enclosure is an idea that I use frequently to uh, to create a sense of misdirection, right? Because you have, you know, you don't want your solos or you don't want your, your playing to be too angular, right? Or what I mean by that, it just goes in one direction and it goes the other direction, right? That's boring. <laughs> That's just boring, <laughs> right? So uh, I'll use enclosure um, to kind of create some sense of, to kind of confuse the ear almost, but it's also just hip. It lends itself to so many things. Like you can, you can use it when you're using enclosure, you can ghost note, you know, like a ghost note, like you hit the note and then like the less one is, or the next one is less present, right? You can ghost notes using enclosure. You can change direction. You can change harmonic values, right? So here's just an, just an example of, of, of using enclosure. Um, uh, so I'm going to do um, like a, my a concert F uh, arpeggio, right? But I'm going to enclose the notes, right? So just these notes here. Just took I, that was just a, a F a concert F um, arpeggio 
using enclosure. And so if I want to start playing blues, I can just use that one concept and then I'm off to the races. Um, I saw this, um, uh, I saw a, a masterclass a workshop that Chris Potter was doing. And uh, he was, he was kind of talking about the same thing I was just saying, like a lot of the things that he practices, it's kind of tough to put into words sometimes because you, you're not using language when you're thinking about these things, when you're playing, it's really tough to explain what, what it is, the things, the, the mechanisms and levers that I pull in order to make what happens happen. Uh, but he was just saying that the, uh, initially, and I, I thought this, it, it was pretty striking to me. He was saying that, um, when he gets when you when you start and there's a moment you always know like when you get ready to you know like the band's cooking and maybe you're like the second or third soloist right and you know it's your time to give you the now you're coming right and so there's that moment where you're getting ready to play and that moment is really important <laughs> in uh, in how you um and it, you have to establish yourself like it's kind of like that thing first impression but Potter <clears throat> Potter was saying that. Um, he just uses, he wants to get one thing, just one item to use to get the thing going, and then you're going. Uh, you know, I was telling my wife yesterday, like, and I've said this many times over the years, like, when you're playing, it happens, the, 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 when you're playing, it happens too quickly for you to think about Um too many things at once. So what you want to do is simplify things as much as possible. And uh, yeah, to finish the Potter quote, he was just saying that uh, all you really need, is, or all he was looking for, all he likes to look for when he gets started is one either, either rhythmic figure, uh, one harmonic concept, or maybe something that applies to what had just happened, you know, something tangible in that moment, right? Um, the, the player, uh, whatever was happening in the music right before you started, find an element in there, find something. In the, or maybe somebody sneezed in the room, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you use that. Like, have a little outburst, you know? Um, and then you're using that, and then you're off, right? And so I said all that to, to, to um, just uh, emphasize the point that uh, when you're playing – you know, all these things, you, you can't think about too much when you're playing. You want to just sing that sing that singular line if you're a sax player. You know, piano players have a lot of di different things to do. But uh, have that clear single line in your head. Like, it's, I mean, yeah, there are things, there's a harmonic uh, extensions and substitutions and ways that you can manipulate the chords that will occur. Like one particular note, you hear, and that will occur naturally, but you should proactively just relax and try to simplify things as much as possible. And so um, the reason that came to mind was because of the uh, that enclosure idea uh, that I was using. Immediately, I just thought like one, three, five, just like when Marcel is like, he'll do the same thing. He loves the blues, right? And so, or I don't know, I was doing F. Right. So if I just, I'm just gonna take that that uh, enclosure idea, and just go with it, right? And then, and then you'll kind of see what uh, what what's what's possible with that, right? <laughs> 
So I, I took that one um, that one enclosure idea and just started to mess around with the blues form, uh, blues and F, but just keeping it really loose with the same, I, you know, try to incorporate some uh, some elements of enclosure. But right, once you once you start, you just oh, just go with uh, you know, trust your ear. Uh, and trust your work, trust the work that you put in, you know, if, if you, uh, if you understand uh, uh, the chordal sequences as they lie, um, then just trust your instincts. Don't try to think about it too much. Just have some fun with it. That's the most important part. Uh, that's, that's kind of why we do this thing. It's one of the most important, like music is just such an effective tool. It's so important in our society, and I think um, it's something that, yeah, we desperately need. So, yeah, if uh, if you hear something, just just trust your instincts. You know, um, another another concept that you can think about using is just is uh, is um, is staying rhythmic rhythmically valid. I don't know if I covered this in my first session, but if not, uh, I'll, I'll I'll just go or, go over it. Um, there's a couple principles that I like to keep in mind uh, uh, when I'm working, not so much when I'm performing, but uh, I want to try to work in some rhythmic stuff, like whatever it is. Uh, I want to try to um, incorporate something interesting uh, rhythmic uh, that I'm working on. Um, I want to have some type of um, harmonic, right? Uh, concept that I work on, whether it's new or something that's already familiar, right? I want to work, I want to like try to work in some type of dynamic uh, component, right? Like um, whether that means just going all out that day, and the, the, the dynamics of triple forte, right? Or mixing it up, right? And I also want to try to use some type of a melodic element as a sax player it's in some other instruments it's not as important like the drums but as a sax player being able to play melodic or play melodies not necessarily ones that are, are already established being able to play in a melodic fashion uh is something that i try to work on right and and these are just uh, these are just things that i will randomly you know what i mean like if I my like for today, my rhythmic component could be you know trying to work on pentatonics, which is another one, another thing that you can uh, definitely make great use of um, uh, when you're when you're playing um, uh, the pentatonic concept. You can you can incorporate your rhythmic uh, and your harmonic thing, into, and you can wrap that into one ball. What I, what I mean if you don't know what if I uh, when I say pentatonic, it's a, it's like a five note scale, right? And uh, Jerry Bergonzi, another great tenor player, one of my heroes, uh, he said that the pentatonic scale could be any five notes. Uh, but typically, when you're talking about a major pentatonic, you're talking about uh, the one, two, three, five, and six, right? So. <laughs> Right. So this is something that you can use and, and that you should have great use of. Right. Um, so that's like a major pentatonic. But then, um, 
you can also think about pentatonics as like your blue scale without the flat five, right? Uh, so I'll play a major pentatonic and then I'll play a, a, like a minor pentatonic, uh, like you would refer to it like, with, like a blue scale uh, without the flat five. So that's also considered a pentatonic scale, right? Um, and all I'm doing is just playing the blue scale and omitting the flat five. Here's a blue scale with the flat five. major pentatonic there at the end and and ultimately ultimately the goal is you want to be able to get these things up to speed um when i'm mentioning these things like ultimately right until you get it you want to take it slow you wouldn't believe how slowly i was reading through the omni book last night and a lot of these songs i know but i was doing it slowly i was telling my wife and son you know it's actually easier to play this stuff fast right because when you're playing it slower you have an opportunity to think about it and get in the way <laughs> you know what I mean? It's actually easier to apply to. I was playing Donald Lee or something, and that passage right there at the end, I was trying to play it. Um, I was cooking through it fast, but then the second I slowed it down, I was fumbling all over the place. I had to think about it, right? So I was I was playing like the like the last A section of Donald Lee, like. <laughs> So first of all, let me just, I, I'm kind of breezing through these things. Like I said, if you have any questions, if I mention something, I know I'm not stopping to, to uh, like dive into every topic. I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there um, because I want to try to be as informative as possible. But if there's something uh, that I've said you want to, that you want to dive into a little deeper, please feel free to, uh, to drop any questions or anything like, thing like that. So uh, as far as the major pentatonics, I just played a concert uh, E-flat major. I was using concert E-flat, my F. Um, so the idea is to just start off slow, but ultimately you want to have the facility or the ability to, to do these things as quickly you know, as need be uh, for effect on stage. Ultimately, this, you know, if you're doing all this stuff, you're practicing all these things, you want to be able to implement them when you're playing with other musicians. If you're just practicing all this stuff and you can't use it, then you're probably practicing the wrong stuff, right? So, uh, so I'll just go through um, some pentatonics uh, chromatically, and and one of the things that uh, that I try to focus on is just keeping everything smooth. Everything should sound the same, you know. Uh, what I mean by that, like. Some people are like, oh, what's your best key? Like, I don't know. I play, seriously, when I do stuff, <laughs> yeah, all of them, right? I mean, yeah, what's the best shoe size, right? <clears throat> I'm, um, uh, at least I try. I try to go through the horn. Like, if I come up with an idea, um, I'll try to take it around the horn. Sometimes straight up to chromatic scale, but sometimes at random just to give myself a, a challenge. 
Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll work through the, um, the pentatonic scale here uh, grammatically, uh, just so you can get a, kind of get a sense of, you know, how you can maybe uh, uh, build some exercises for yourself. sound the same in terms of the way you articulate the value of each note. You don't want any like uh, like wobbly sections like I had there in the middle. <laughs> but uh, in, I mean, in, in, in all seriousness, like in terms of like the tone, the way that the, the horn is speaking, like when you're working up the chromatic scale, you don't want there to be parts of it that are more present than others or less present. I mean, if anything, yeah, like I like to think about the saxophone sound like a floral, uh, like a floral bouquet, right? Like as soon as it, and you know, it, it's like a like a bouquet of flowers. It's it's comical. There's a reason that I think that way. The, the horn, the saxophone is a is a big cone starting at the mouthpiece to the to the end of the bell. It's just a large curved curved cone. And so I like to think about the sonic concept in that nature, right? Like a like a floral bouquet. Like you're coming out. All right, and then it just kind of spreads out. You want a night. You don't want a sound that's too focused and too narrow and too or too wide. Right, your flowers are going to be all laying off to the side, and nobody's going to want to smell them, and <laughs> you know they're going to look tired. And then if they're and then if it's too tight, if it's too upright, then there's no room. You can't you can't see them. Uh, they they can't breathe. So I think about the the uh, the saxophone sound uh, much in the same way. Like you want a good balance of highs and lows, a good spread and a good focus core all at the same time. You want uh, a, a good mech, a good mix of all concepts. So uh, what I'm going to do right now is just play a chromatic scale so you can get a sense of what you, you know, what you would uh, maybe hope to achieve um, uh, in terms of uh, having evenness of scale uh, across the horn. Um, yeah, I'll just start uh, at the uh, concert B flat, right? <laughs> scale right there but you want you want to have an even as a scale you want to be able to jump through register or make register jumps and large octave leaps without uh, you know making too much of a, a, a of an effort to do so um, yeah it's one of the things I was saying that the, while I love these mouthpieces so much I'm able to more or less get the same uh, type of um, feel and sound in response but I don't have to work nearly as hard uh, to do so uh, which is really a treat. Um, and th they also seem to, uh, like I was able to, able to pull out a lot of my old reads just to, to do some testing. And uh, this mouthpiece, or all of those mouthpieces seem to be a lot more read friendly. Um, 
So yeah, that's that's also something that you want to consider. Uh, I don't know if uh, I dove into that too much at the beginning of the uh, of the video when I was talking about equipment, but uh, your read selection, like your size, the size of the read uh, that you select is going to be important. And um, you you want to find a read that is hard enough to support the sound, yet soft enough to allow you to articulate. Um, you know, and if, if a read is too hard, yeah, it will support the sound, but you can't move around. And then if it's too soft, it's going to get all noodly and, and, and it just won't su support or sustain. Like when you go to hold a note, that thing will be all over the place in a way. You want that thing to be right there in the middle. And then uh, you can start to color it as necessary. Like if you listen to any great vocalist, I mean, uh, Aretha Franklin, anybody down the line, right? We, what you will hear is like a subtle vibration or a subtle wave in their sound when, you know, and that's that's their signature. Everybody has that. So be, that's another thing that you can, that's, that's one of, you can, if you want to have a checklist of things that you want to execute during your practice session during the day, that would serve uh, to working uh, your dynamic portion uh, or the dynamic element of that exercise, right? Um, having a good vibrato, right? Um, not too much. Uh, I mean, like, if you, you, that's another thing you just have to, I can't really explain that in, in a few minutes. That's something that people develop over their lifetime. Um, but having uh, the ability to uh, implement a little vibrato or have none at all, your control over that element will, will really kind of set you apart because you'll hear some some sax players or some vocalists, you know, and the vibrato is just really out of control. And for some people, I mean, I don't know, I guess for a, a 1920 silent film or something like that, it would be really appropriate, you know, but uh, for, to, for modern music, it's just not all that hip to be like, <laughs> I mean, I guess. I mean, who am I to judge? <laughs> Go for it. You want to add a lot of vibrato? You know what? I I I changed my mind. Go for it. But no, you you see what I mean. Uh, to have uh, a good working control uh, over that element will really uh, add a lot of nuance and presence uh, to your sound, and 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 it's it's just a sign of of seasoning. You know, a, a lot of seasoning. You you know. I think that when, when I listen to some of my sax heroes, some of the most uh, engaging and most important stuff that I hear is I, I want to hear these guys play a ballad. You know, I want to hear those notes really speak. You know, if you haven't, you know, for me, it's just perfect. Like if I have a gathering or something, I want to hear some bossa novas and some ballads. For some people, you know, they want to rock it and they want to kick it up a little bit. I want to sit back, smoke a cigar and get my adult beverage of choice. Give me some Johnny Hartman and, you know, and John Coltrane or, or you know, like any of the old crooners, you know, the the, 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 the ballads. That's that's really where it's at. You're going to be able to see uh, the, the character of someone's sound uh, when you slow it down and there's nothing to mask it. You know, it's like completely exposed. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I just think that just says a, 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 a lot more about someone's playing. So if, if you're a sax player and you go online, I already told you, don't believe or listen to a lot of that stuff you see on there. There's a lot of trolls out there, people that just really don't, who would not otherwise have a voice. I'll say that. <laughs> um, so don't don't buy into the hype. Like one of the, I say that to say that one of the things that the guys online say is, uh, you know, what what's the key to playing or having a good sound? And everybody just jokingly says long tones. Well, that's not the only thing you need, but there is a lot of truth to that. But I, the point is, I, I think that you can effectively achieve doing that simply by playing ballads because they're slow. You are playing long tones and you have to sustain these tones. So it's, I mean, it's like, it's 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 weightlifting for your chops, you know, for your for your amateur. Like, cause you don't, there's no break. You're completely exposed. The sound, you know, when you play a ballad and you really play it sweet, I think that's way more important than blazing. Like, if somebody shows up and they can just cook and then, okay, that's great. Let me hear you play a ballad, <laughs> you know, and that's gonna let me know where you are, you know. This label, you know, like uh. <laughs> some of the guys that you find pleasing to listen to. There's a ton of guys out there. Every day I discover somebody that I never heard of. I mean, not like an ultimate. I mean, there's a lot of guys uh, today that are just playing their buns off. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's a strong community of guys out there. You know, all you have to do is go on YouTube for five minutes. You'll find somebody you never heard before that is just amazing, right? And so, yeah, listening is a, is a really important part of the thing and that'll allow you to understand how to put all these pieces together. Once you do the practice, okay, you've done your scales, right? You've played ballads, you've played long tones, you have all these tools in your tool chest, okay. Now you need to put them together. Now you need to make the piece of art. You need to start sculpting, but, you know, not every, you know, I'm sure you got a hammer in there somewhere. We don't always need a hammer. Save that for later, right? But you have a, you have all the tools. Now you need to put something together. Uh, and, and it's really important to, uh, yeah, to, to, to just stay focused, stay, stay on it. Like uh, hard work and dedication, uh, uh, there's no substitute for it. Um, like I, I get asked questions by by sax players from around the world. I keep in contact, you know, my travels, I've, I've met a lot of sax players 
a lot of musicians, and I'll periodically have someone call me and ask me, like, hey, what are you playing on right now? What are you working on? And I'm having trouble with this. And what do I, what, how can I get there quicker or easier or whatever? And I'll try to be as helpful as possible, but there really is no substitute for just putting in some time. Like, I'll, I mean, there are some technical things that I can help you with. Like, if you're having some difficulty with your son, like, I gave a sex lesson to my son yesterday, and he was just having some issues. He couldn't, you know, really get the, the, the notes out right. So I was like, yeah, well, take the neck off. Let me see what you got going on. And he didn't have to read up on the table and straight the way that he needed to. So I just helped him out to, you know, it's, uh, get the get the read set on the mouthpiece. So there are some technical things that uh, you definitely want to uh, remove any impediments uh, from uh, from your work or from your study. Uh, but beyond that, you just you have to work. There are some things that will inherently prevent you from having any success on the success on the saxophone. Uh, like if you have some technical issues with your mouth mouthpiece or your mouth or your read any any part of the chain or if your sax is uh, leaking. Uh, I know I covered this in the first video, but one of the first things that I do, uh, I didn't hear on this session because I was playing a little bit before we got started, but one of the first things I do when I grab my horn and get it together is I like to play a low B flat to ensure the thing is, is working properly. It's a conical instrument starting from the mouthpiece to the tip of the, or to the, to the bell. The sound is pretty much going to escape out of the first available hole. And if that's the end of the bell, that's where it is. That's where I want my air to come out. So I will, I'll close all the holes. I'll play a, a low concert A flat, which is a B flat on the tenor saxophone. And um, I'll just make sure that it's working properly, mechanically first. I want to make sure all the pads are sealing. And then, you know, once I achieve that, then I'll start playing. What I mean by that, I'll put it together. Once I have everything, I'm just I'm pretending like I'm just starting. I'm going to start my work. Um, so I'll just pick it up. And it's a good test for my embouchure as well. Now, I've already been playing, but I'm talking in between. So just try to play a low B flat once you get your, you get your horn together, right? repairman 
um, you know, just limiting my my contact with everyone. So I've had a, I've had the opportunity to do some uh, some saxophone repairs here on my own here at the house, uh, which is lots of fun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, one of the things uh, I mentioned when I was uh, down in the lower register of the horn, uh, you heard me play a little thing right there at the end. That's the overtone series. Uh, that's something else that's going to help you. Um, just become much, much more uh, familiar uh, with your instrument. Um, uh, yeah, I'll just start on a low B flat and uh, start to play around with the overtone series. And uh, also what this serves to do is um, it helps you with your facility above above the, uh, the break, right? If you're playing the saxophone, and you have, this is a vintage horn. This is a uh, summer Mark six from 59. All the vintage horns, they don't have an F sharp. I don't know if you can see that, but there's the, the alternate F sharp. And the modern horns would normally have a key right in there. And that would be your high F sharp. These horns don't have it. So, and F, and yeah, and F, well, you have to, after the alternate F sharp, that's basically the last note that you can naturally play on the instrument without going into the altissimo, which is uh, uh, what the upper register of the saxophone is called. Now, working on your overtone series will absolutely help you to, uh, to, to get a better uh, understanding of how to play up top. Um, a good friend of mine, Seamus Blake, uh, I, I took a lesson with him uh, when I was in, up in New York a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've heard him play. You should. If you haven't, check out Seamus Blake. This guy, he's, he has one of the most amazing uh, uh, abilities to, to go up in the upper registers of, upper register of the horn. And uh, uh, yeah, the reason I mention him is he, he helped me out a lot with getting um, – getting control of the upper register. And uh, yeah, I thank him immensely uh, for all his help. But uh, the overtone series is one of the things that I, I started working on um, to to achieve um, some, some upper register clarity, right? So all I'm doing is just playing a low B flat and closing all the notes, right? Or closing all the keys. And I'm gonna play just to, I'm going to play the overtone series with that one note, right? Right, so that's one note. Well, what that does, that allows you to hear and feel the harmonics of the horn. Now, I'll give you an example. I'll just play some stuff up in the altissimo. And uh, doing that, like doing this overtone series will give you a sense of how it feels to play up in the altissimo. It's very similar, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Tone series will just help you get up in the upper register and uh, and uh, it feels very much the same when you put like you obviously need fingerings to go up in the upper register but playing the Overtone series feels just like playing Altissimo you're blowing overtones through through the horn so definitely work on uh, on uh, on your on your over, over overtone series as well and uh, yeah I just caught a glimpse of the time <laughs> and I realized how long I'm gone uh, we will be putting together uh, an advanced um, course as well uh, where I'll dig in uh, into some more um, advanced concepts uh, as it pertains uh, to soloing and uh, harmonic structures once again thanks uh, to Steve and Lee and all the guys over at the Clearwater Jazz Holiday. Um, our education and outreach program is uh, growing by leaps and bounds. And uh, thanks to all the other clinicians and guys who participated in this. And thank you, uh, everyone out there uh, for, for listening and joining us. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, another, I mean, another fantastic session, Jeremy. Thanks for going the extra mile with us. We really appreciate it. Great stuff today. And I know it will be appreciated and valued by a lot of people um, who, who not only participated today, but will be watching these videos and listening to the podcast. Um, and uh, you're going to be back with us. You're going to be back with us yeah. on August the 5th for an advanced tenor sax session to round out yes. this specific series, which will be great. And um, for those listening today and watching the video later, um, in the upcoming weeks, we have some really great folks scheduled with us. Everyone from Valerie Gillespie to Pete Carney to Pat Close and Pear Danielson covering sax and piano and drums and some multi-instrumental courses. And uh, last but not least, I wanted to give a shout out to our friends at the Al Downing Tampa Bay Jazz Association for helping to support what we're doing here and to expand the reach of these sessions, including the session today. So on behalf of the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation and our extended family, Jeremy, thanks for being with us today. Great job and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. This podcast series is presented by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. To watch the video of this full session, please visit the education and outreach page at clearwaterjazz.com and click on the studio. You can also learn more about the annual Clearwater Jazz Holiday Music Festival tradition and Clearwater Jazz Holiday's year-round education and outreach at clearwaterjazz.com.